it's time once again for another episode of Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality today with a dash of recovery thrown in along the way. So if you've ever had questions about the church, your own religion, or maybe just the whole subject in general, then you've come to the right place. Because today, well, we're not going to be controversial. We're just going to talk about what it's like to be white, English, and privileged. Our host, well, he was an honors philosophy graduate. He ordained a Presbyterian minister and planted three churches along the way. He taught at a prestigious university and was even a teaching pastor at one of those big mega churches we all know about. But now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who sits and wonders, ponders the one question on all our mind, and never ceases to ask, why? Why not bring him in and find out more? Dr. John Bash. Welcome, sir. I will uh, never forget the first time I heard someone mention wasp and realized they weren't talking about those bee-like creatures who sting and are really scary. I was quite young, and uh, when the acrostic was explained to me, I realized I was still lost. I only understood what one of those four words meant, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. Okay, I thought I got the white. The other three, well, forget it. I'm guessing everyone has their own story of how they came to discover the identity of their family, skin color, racial background, national identity, religion, etc. But it isn't something that comes very intuitively. These are all categories that require a certain degree of learning and context. As the years went by, I learned a bit more. Anglo-Saxon in my mind just meant English or British, and I didn't get the difference between those two at all. But at least I had a bucket into which I could put the Anglo and the Saxon. Protestant, that was a bit harder. We went to a different church building, as if we ever went, and then the Catholics did, and we could eat meat on Friday, and if we had a cross hanging in our home, it wouldn't have Jesus still hanging on it. Our ministers wouldn't wear those long dresses or black clothes during the week with a white thing they called a collar. But so what? What really mattered was discovering what it meant to others. Some seemed very proud of being wasps, like an attainment of sort and somehow superior to other categories of people. And there didn't seem to be variations of it. Never heard of a wasp or a white Anglo-Saxon Catholic or a wasp, a black Anglo-Saxon Protestant. I could go on, but you get the point. What's the big deal? For my grandmother, it was a huge deal because she was a D-A-R. Here we got more initials, a daughter of the American Revolution, and even an elite one because she was also a dam, a daughter of the Mayflower. That's about as close to royal pedigree as one could have, as it was explained to me in elementary school. My blood must be red, white, and blue. Now, I know that WASP was referring to a certain combination of race, heritage, and religion, which somehow meant I had hit the jackpot. I was privileged. Over time, I came to discover that lots of people didn't like WASPs, and the subtleties and nuances surrounding the issues weren't going to go away. Certainly not anytime soon if you read the newspapers. 
So today, I decided to bring in a special guest. She is more white than me. She's way more English than I am, and she's worked in the city in London and on Wall Street in Manhattan with names that look exactly like the ones on your checking account. Privileged indeed, born English, raised in Cambridge, mother of three. Miss Julia, I bet you've never been introduced that poorly in your life, but I want to dive into the privileged stuff right away. Welcome to Church Hurts End. Thank you, John. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. So tell me, um, give me the context for your education. Where were you raised, and how did that education system work? Because it's not like here. Yeah, um, I was at the back end of the truly academic, elitist education system in England, where um, you were basically tested at age 11. They called this exam the 11 plus. And if you passed the exam, you went off to a, an academic school. And these academic privileged schools were funded, believe it or not, by, uh, by the government. And it was about 5% of the school population was uh, identified as gifted, if you will, and, and sent off to these schools, which is what happened to me. Now, what that meant was that from age 11, I never really interacted with anybody who wasn't my intellectual peer. So, you know, these exams were based on um, IQ tests, basically. So the idea for many years, I didn't even realize that there was a whole segment of the population who had an IQ that was less than 130. I, I, it was, and I if, was if really... they were tested, if they were tested as less than that at age 11 or 12, we're talking about, they're set on a path. They don't really have a chance to go the direction that you had, right? So you're, you're set for life. Right, right. That was very true. And as I said, I was at the back end of this because in the 1970s in England, um, there was a movement to address exactly that inequality, that there were a number of children who were not given the right opportunities because they may be late bloomers or the test wasn't fairly administered and they were not given the same opportunities as those of us who passed that test. But, okay. but you mentioned to me one time that you didn't go to Eton or Harrow. You were trying to make the point, I think, that you didn't go to the really elite schools. But then you explained more about that. So where did you end up? We're talking about high school now. We're not talking about college yet. Right, right. I went to uh, the grammar school for girls in Cambridge, um, which was one of these uh, academic elite schools. Now, my grandfather wanted me to go to the, the, the girl's equivalent of the boarding school that he went to, which was a famous Presbyterian-run boarding school. But in the end, I stayed at the, the grammar school for girls. My, my path may have been very different if I hadn't stayed there. Um, it was a fabulous school, but it was very old-fashioned. We... Uh, we were identified as either academically gifted and then put on track of academics. Or if not so much, the teachers were all female and they, um, the idea was if you were 
academically gifted, then you would be going to college, probably to end up as a teacher. If you were not, then they were going to teach you to be a good wife and mother. That was wow. that was their role. So you ended up with additional uh, sewing and cooking classes. Um, luckily, or maybe unluckily, I uh, I didn't end up in that track. Now, now for those of our listeners who know um, the show a bit, they realize there got to be a reason that you're here. We we're, we've really qualified you as being pretty white and pretty privileged so far. We should mention your great grandfather was a knight of the realm for services the king and country. Talk about the fringes of aristocracy. That sounds like aristocracy to me. And we asked our last guest, who was from India, if it would be safe for you to go to the town in India that your grandfather basically ruled over, your great-grandfather, that he ruled over, and he said, you better get there soon. And I looked at the newspaper yesterday, and I think it's too late. I don't know if you know, but it's not a pretty picture. But you really, I mean, come from that pedigree that's foreign to us Americans. It really is. So let's tell a little bit of your story in terms of why you're here. You ended up, um, how in the world did you end up um, in the city in London? So I, when I graduated college, um, well, my senior year of college, and there were a lot of recruiters came on campus to to try and attract us to various uh, various industries. And I was kind of interested in the banks. Um, it seemed to me, you know, a, a place where I could be financially successful. And I was very attracted by Citibank. Now, I have to admit, for the worst possible of reasons, because they had a free cafeteria. So the way that I looked at this, I would have to move to London that was very expensive. And if I worked for Citibank, I wouldn't have to uh, to buy any groceries because they had a free cafeteria. So, um, so that's why I ended up on the graduate training scheme at, uh, at Citibank in the city of London. So we skipped the fact that your credentials were you were a language major who ended up in finance, right? Right. That, that is absolutely true. Um, I majored in French and German, but at that time, the banks were quite interested in people with non-finance credentials because, in their view, they were able to teach their graduate trainees everything they needed to know about finance, but having those additional skill sets might be useful. So that's how that's how I ended up at Citibank. And, and for those of you who um, are not aware, the the city in London is Wall Street, basically here. And you you were at the very cutting edge beginning of derivatives or something right. like that, right? Right. Um, so I very soon migrated from Citibank and ended up at a bank called Bankers Trust, which uh, is an American bank that uh, ultimately failed in around 2000 and was bought out by Deutsche Bank. But Bankers Trust, for anybody who's uh, who's up to speed with finance, was one of the cutting edge developers of financial derivatives. And that's really what drove my career. I ended up with, um, I ended up working for Bankers Trust until they, they failed in 2000. Um, 
And I was given the opportunity to move from London to New York working for Bankers Trust. And that's uh, that's how I ended up here. Um, and then ultimately, when they failed, I was recruited by Lehman Brothers. So okay, I let, have a little let, bit. Let's bit stop. Of... Let's stop here. You're getting ahead of me. Because in this process, we've not qualified you for white, for privileged. Now you've gone from the center of the financial world in London to the center of financial world in Manhattan on Wall Street. And in this process, of course, it's a big deal. I mean, you're an English girl and you're now um, in America. You, you end up in a situation that you're also a mother. And you had um, two um, amazing children and then you had your third. And tell me a little bit about what it was like when you had your third child. So I had two girls, one, my eldest daughter is seven, eight years older than the, the next two. And the, the two younger ones were both born here in the US. So I had two girls and really wanted a boy, as you do. Um, just it would be nice to round out my family with a boy. So we decided to have another child quite fast on the heels of, uh, of the middle one. And my son Chris was born. And he was, um, there was something not right from the beginning. From He went straight into intensive care when he was born. He uh, looked like he was premature, but um, it was a C-section delivery. And he, just by the dates, he shouldn't have been premature. But he had no, uh, no fat on him, um, just looked very odd. And he was having a lot of trouble breathing. So... He was in intensive care for a couple of days. He, 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 he thrived. He did okay. Um, he never made any milestones. And I was constantly worried that there was something wrong, but we didn't know what it was until he was in preschool where he was identified as being autistic. Um, and from that point on, he went into special education. Now, my husband at the time um, was so devastated by this diagnosis. The son that we had yearned for was not going to be, you know, I think every parent when they have a little boy thinks, oh, you know, they, they, they see him playing baseball or soccer or, you know, hanging out with his with his, with his guys and just, you know, being the son that you always wanted. And knowing that now we had a child who wasn't going to live up to those expectations. Um, I do think, though, in a lot of ways, this was God basically pointing out very gently to me that as that white English and privileged person my expectation had been very much that, oh, I'll have one daughter who's a doctor and one child who's a lawyer and, uh, you know, an expectation of success in my children. This and is, I had this defined... Is not gonna be a, this isn't going to be an Eaton or Harrow question. This is every day getting through the day as a mother of an autistic child, the challenges... Let, let me let me just sidetrack from here. Let's go to one particular day. You know, and um, I can't even ask the question without tearing up. But 
everybody knows where they were on that day, on 9-11. Tell us about where you were, because I happen to know at that time you were in America working for a big bank and, you know, just life's cruising. You have some difficulties, but where were you in the morning of 9-11? I was in the South Tower of uh, the World Trade Center. And I am one of the lucky ones. I made it out of that building. One of my friends didn't. Um, you, the floor you were on was which floor? The 22nd floor of the South Tower. Now, my immediate response when I saw out of the windows what was happening was, you know, I had I lived in London for so many years. I'd seen... IRA terrorist actions in London. I looked at it and said, this is a terrorist attack. And I said to uh, one of my friends, we do not listen to anything that anybody says we're getting out of this building. Um, and that's exactly what we did. We walked down the stairs. And as we were walking down the stairs, there were firemen coming up the stairs. There were people uh, telling us to go to the rooftop because we would be airlifted off the top. We just ignored that and, you know, took shoes off and, uh, you know, because, of course, we were wearing high heels. <laughs> it was like, you know, why? why? But um, And continued down the stairs. Um, now, when we got to the bottom of the stairs, there were, um, there was, there was, like, it was like a picture of, of hell. Hieronymus Bosch comes to mind because there was just globs. We're of, talking raining fire. Right? Raining fire, exactly. And um, I still have little scars on my arms from, from the raining fire. Um, and we just made it through that whole area and you know, I saw the picture. I saw the people jumping out of windows. I saw all of that. Um, you got, you got on a ferry, right? Yes, I got on the ferry. Ever, ever grateful to the guys who run the ferries in New York because they, they just showed up. Um, they and just got people off the island of Manhattan as fast as they could. And you turned and around. Were, when you yep. turned around, when you got on the ferry, what did you see? The uh, the South Tower coming down. Just uh, I'll never forget that as long as I live. Just. Uh, this cloud of dust. Um, this, is, um, this is Church Hurts. How do you feel about God? At that point, I fired God. Um, I had a very misguided view of what and who God is. And I didn't understand. I didn't understand predestination. I didn't understand... God as a loving, omnipotent God. It took another journey for me to understand God. But at that time, I fired God. I couldn't reconcile a God who would let 2,000 innocent people die. But we're back there again. We've got thousands of people who've died in this country right wait, now. Wait, so. wait, wait. You're going too fast. Um, <laughs> Uh, Julia, you know, I, I call you a female Forrest Gump. So I, I, there's a reason for that because you, you were really, you really fired God and you were angry, but seven years and a few days later, 
in this country was another moment that's on the calendar. At the time, you were working for a, a company called Lehman, and there was an issue going on in the country. What was it the weekend before uh, the famous day? Tell us about that. Um, well, yeah, I don't know uh, where to begin on that, um, but basically um, we went down into one of the biggest crises the the country has ever seen, I think dwarfed now, but um, but at that time, 2008, and <clears throat> Lehman Brothers that had been gradually getting into deeper and deeper trouble finally filed for bankruptcy. What did you do? Now, I, you were working for them, right? All of a sudden yes. you find out you have no job. Um, I was working for them, but what I... What, what happened was that Barclays, the British bank, was interested in taking over Lehman Brothers. Now, you know, the, 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 there is a nuance here. The Barclays was very clever. They didn't take over, over Lehman Brothers before they filed for bankruptcy. They took over Lehman Brothers after they filed for bankruptcy, which meant that they didn't, get, they didn't have to take on any of the debt of, of Lehman Brothers. That went into the bankrupt estate. So it was, a very, it was a, a, a very astute move on the part of Barclays. They, so I ended up working for Barclays, and I was supporting the municipal finance business at the okay, time. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt you again. But as <laughs> I remember the story, as the whole world was waiting to see what's going to happen with these banks and, and uh, what we were going to do, um, this huge financial crisis, and you end up in all of your, um, you know, co-workers finding out you don't have a job, and um, and while they're sitting there um, drinking at the time, you decided to go into work. Tell me about that. Well, yes. Yeah, so I knew that this business I was supporting was a business that Barclays wanted, and so. I went into work working with some of my colleagues in municipal finance to build up uh, PowerPoint decks to present to the Barclays management to show what we were doing um, to ensure that um, they had uh, that they 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 would support this business. So you know, I was you know, we were off to the races and uh, really working harder than anybody anybody else around now the, the result of that was the barclays management was super impressed with what we were doing and ended up as you know john in when i was later made redundant by barclays the guy who was most impressed with me at the time had moved on to the federal reserve and it was he who recruited me to the federal reserve so these things you know they uh they come back to you all right. One more thing. And, you know, we don't have long left, but I want to get in this last story. Um, you know, you've been so um, concise. I really appreciate it. I, I thought for sure I was going to have to hold you over for another show. But I do want to hear about the time because this caught up with you. It all caught up with you. And um, tell me about oh, that. Yeah, John, it sure did. And I ended up um, having a breakdown. Um my marriage failed. Uh, my children were, were were grown and gone. Um, and I ended up drinking too much and um, 
I ended up in a, in a mental hospital. Now, um, that started a journey of recovery for me that has been a, a journey of refinding my strength in the Lord, um, of sobriety, of a new life, of a new way of, of being. Um, it was the, wor my, the worst day of my life, and it was the best day of my life. Um, and I always uh, go back to a minister who came into the hospital, and I told him I was in a dark pit and there was no way out. And he said, remember the story of Lazarus, um, but you have to reach out your hand. Jesus is there, and he's waiting for you, but you need to reach your hand out. And I will never forget that. That was the start of my journey back to the Lord and back to recovery. And so I think um, you would be a person who says, uh, you know what, this 12-step stuff works. Firing God doesn't work very well, does it? No, no. Um, and I feel that God has a sense of humor. And, and God knew that I was, I was one of his, and he was going to find me again. Um, and he sure did. Um, I feel like... I could have listened to him a long time before I did, but, you know, we, we come to the Lord when we're ready. And I was not ready um, to really hear and understand his message. But today I'm like, you know, the, uh, um, I do all these, these MOOC online courses, and I'm doing one right now about Luther and Western civilization and you know, it's um, it it makes my day just learning more and more, and uh, and I'm, you know, I'm beautiful about my Bible study every day, and it's become part of my life, and I am so happy. I'm so happy to be where I am today. Before we close, Julia, I want to say thank you, um, but I want to take a moment to make a very personal comment. Already can hear me tearing up. I don't know how I'll do, but today it was hard for me um, because this white privileged person was very key in my life. Um, I call her um, now, we skipped the part. Her reaction to 9 11 was to go down to the immigration office. Um, Jimmy is an American, she's a survivor and a thriver, and I'm beyond honored to call her one of my closest and dearest friends on this planet. Now, <clears throat> I must admit that I'm struggling these days. I don't like the virus, which is a very stupid thing to say after what we've talked about, like anyone does. I don't like the uncertainty of civil unrest and hostility in politics like never before. And I don't have all the answers. But I do have one. Somewhere underneath the issues, like Julia, the issues that you have that are bothering you, somewhere deeper than the fireworks, somewhere under the clothes and the jewelry and the hair or the hairless, is a person. Like you, they have a story. Like you, they have a soul. No matter what color, what country, what heritage, what memories, what biases, what blindness, there is a person, a person with a story. Now, you know Julia. She's not white, English, and privileged. She's Julia. But Jesus, a real person, 
didn't get very angry very often, but he did once, and most of us have heard about it. And since this is church hurts, we have a clue where it might have been. It was in a church. What? In a church? Then it was called a synagogue, but you get the point. What was he mad about? Religious people missing the point? Religious people taking advantage of others, not learning their story, just trying to take their money. Did you forget whose house this is? Stop it. Do you forget who these people belong to? Stop it. This is my father's house. Julia works in a building just a few stories above 2,600 tons of something. Know how much a ton is? 26, did I say? 6,200 tons of pure gold. It didn't help her when push came to shove. She didn't ask for a pass to get near to the gold. She looked up in desperation from a hospital bed and asked God where he had been, and she got an answer. It sent her back to the basement, but of a church where formerly smoke-filled rooms of recovering drunks smiled with open arms and coffee breath and said, welcome home. Find the person, hear their story, and remember life hurts, church hurts, people hurts, and there's some really good news on the other side of the end. wonder what would happen if we'd agree on this. With a firm reliance upon the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. It's worth a thought. For Church Hurts and this is John Bash. Love somebody today, won't you? And enjoy God. Well, with that, we bring to a close today's episode and another emotional episode of Church Hurts and leaving us, well, with a lot to think about. If you'd like to carry on the conversation, you can come back and join us next week. We'll be visiting Africa, Zambia. Wonder of Church Hurts there, too. Our guest has been in the news of late. So if you've never heard of Bodhi Bausham, you're in for a treat. As we discuss his two things I hate, tackling the non-controversial issue of race. And if you'd like to race on and continue the conversation with our host, Dr. John Bash, he's a shepherd with Standing Stone, a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors and Christian leaders at risk of leaving their ministry too soon. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit churchhurtsand.org and tell us your story. We really would like to hear it and share it as we continue to gather the stories of how church hurts and there's hope. For all of us here at Orange County's only community radio station, octalkradio.net. Thanks for tuning in. Come back and join us again each and every week. 